I want to start tonight with a controversial statement. And the statement is, believe it or not, God did not create the world. It's pretty controversial, right? A rabbi should not be saying that. God did not create the world, but it's true. Not only is it true, it is the foundation of Kabbalistic thought. And let me explain to you what I mean. Many of you have encountered, I'm sure, Kabbalah, the study of Kabbalah, the ideas from Kabbalah. At the heart of Kabbalistic thought lies a paradox. It's called the God-World Paradox. And it's a paradox that has been bothering Jewish thinkers for generations. And essentially the paradox is, Hashem is almighty, omnipresent, omniscient, any good title you want to give him, he has. He is the ultimate of perfection, completely transcends any limitations or issues. He's everything perfect. The world is everything imperfect. It's limited, it's egotistical, it's fake, it's every negative quality you can imagine. How could God have created the world? How can we say that God is present in the world? The Torah says, Bereshit bara lokim God created heaven and earth. But how does that work? Knowing what we know when we study God and knowing what we know when we study the world, how do we make sense of the fact that God and the world are, are supposed to be in, in harmony or in fusion? In fact, many Jewish thinkers over the generations have said that it's not so simple. God is not in that close of a relationship with the world as we might think. He created it and sent it on its way. He went on vacation. He doesn't bother to deal with a lowly world like ours. They increased. If the question makes God distant from the world, their answer increased the distance. They said God is so great, Let's make him irrelevant. Kabbalah, one of the biggest novelties that Kabbalah introduced was a new answer to the God-world paradox. And what they said, this Kabbalistic sages said is, God did not create the world. Instead, God created a God which created the world. That's Kabbalah 101. If you want it in one sentence, Hashem himself, in his essence, the transcendent, sublime, incredible, supreme being, created a God which is relatable and capable of animating the world as we know it. In other words, every time we talk about God interacting with the world, we don't mean God in his essence, we mean God in the version of himself that he created so as to be able to relate with the world. By the way, it's not my line. One of my teachers loved saying it in yeshiva. He would love poking us with, with this line. You know, God didn't create the world. God created a God that created the world. It's, it, it, and it gets, you, it gets you thinking. These are not the actual words that Kabbalah uses. Kabbalah uses the terminology called Adam Ha'elyon, the supernal man. It says, God 
created a supernal man, which means a version of himself that has limitation. And that supernal man is the prototype for everything to exist after it and beyond it. Yeah. I feel like I, I believe in this perfection of the imperfection. So it, that wouldn't bother me. Which that part? the world is imperfect or that we're imperfect. Because it's my belief that, that God, like all the imperfections, have a perfection to them. Like it was the intent to create a world where mm, okay. exists. That, that's, that's a great point. And what, what, what I would say to you is, while it's true psychologically, it doesn't pan out theologically. In other words, perfection and imperfection, that fusion is a beautiful idea. And it's something we should all believe in. And if, in fact, I believe that Jewish literature believes that as well. Hashem made the world in an imperfect state so that we can perfect it and bring in, usher in perfection. The question that I was asking before was more of a theological question, which means how do you explain it uh, on, on, on the rational level? Knowing God's characteristics and knowing the world's characteristics, they can't fuse in principle, not necessarily uh, whether they should or shouldn't. They, they, they certainly should. How does... Is that what I'm saying? Yeah. I think it's both. Yeah. Both are true, ultimately. Let's stay with the idea that Hashem created a new version of Himself, so to speak, that's relatable and capable of connecting with a, with a limited world. Is it kind of like one part of the infinite parts of God? Exactly. In other words, Hashem Himself is infinitely beyond creation. But in order to create, He had to lower Himself, what's called in Kabbalah Tzimtzum, a process of reduction and compression of His own light, to allow for a connection with the world. Now the way Kabbalah frames it, and uh, in tonight's letter, we're studying the book four of Atanya, which is just letters that the Alter Rebbe wrote. In this letter, the Alter Rebbe puts it in the following way. He says, this Adam HaElyon, this supernal man, this version of godliness that's uh, getting ready to relate with the world is a trifecta, which means it has three parts. There's a godliness part of this supernal man. There's the part of the supernal man that's, that's connected to the Torah. And there's the part of the supernal man connected to the Jewish people. Because those are the three cores of all of existence. God, Torah, and the Jewish people. And each part of this supernal man was formed in a similar way. They all begin with the number 613. Now this is not explained why 613 was chosen, so we're not going to get into it, but it starts with 613. There's 613 parts, let's call it, general parts of every element of the supernal man. Godliness, the divine light, divided itself into 613 elements. The Torah has 613 mitzvahs. And the Jewish people have a collective soul that has also 613 parts. The collective soul was first owned by Adam, 
Adam HaRishon, he was the first, in his soul was encapsulated all future souls. But then once he did the sin of the Eitz Hadat, it was decreed that not all souls would be Jewish. And the collective Jewish soul was pushed to Jacob, Yaakov Avinu. The Talmud says that the beauty of Yaakov Avinu was as beautiful as Adam HaRishon. So it's literally taken to mean physical beauty, but the Zohar says that it means the fact that they encapsulated within themselves all the Jewish people. It first used to be Adam, then it was passed on to Yaakov Avinu. He has the soul that's like the collective soul for all Jews. And this collective soul also has 613 parts. So the supernal man has three elements. God, Torah, Jews. They all have 613. The thing about the 613 is that even though it limits it greatly to a specific number, Hashem infused each of these groups of 613 with the capacity for infinity. So it's a kind of orderly infinity. Not an infinite infinity, an orderly infinity, which means, let's talk about God. God reduced his divine light to a very specific quality and quantity level. But then he inserted in this light the capacity to be divided by as many times as necessary. God's divine light can reach an unlimited, theoretically, amount of places, things, people, ideas, concepts, you name it. So while it's on the outside, limited, within the order, within the limitation, there's capacity for infinity. The same holds true of the Torah. We know this to be true just by our own uh, experience. The Torah has 613 mitzvahs. But talk to any Jew, and you know there's not just 613 laws. There's hundreds and thousands and millions of laws that are being applied and extrapolated as time goes on and we adjust to contemporary circumstances. Halacha has to find its way into every single element of Jewish life. So while we begin with 613, this 613 really contains within itself an infinity. And Torah is continuing to be explored to this very day and will forever be continuing to be explored because the Torah has within itself the potential to go ad infinitum. The same holds true of the Jewish people. There was a collective soul, one soul that encapsulates within itself all souls. However, these souls have the capacity to mutate. They can, they can break down into individual sparks and those sparks can break down into individual sparks. The Arizal writes that when the Jews left Egypt there were 600,000 souls but each of those 600,000 could then split up into 600,000, which means 360 billion, technically, theoretical souls. And those can further divide. So there's enough soul power in the collective soul to go for infinity. So that's exactly why this supernal man is the most capable of animating the world. Because it retains godly qualities in that there's infinite potential inside it and yet it has limited itself on the outside to adjust to a limited reality. By the way, this supernal man is reflected in the human being. That's why according to the Torah we have 613 limbs. 248 limbs and 365 
sinews or arteries, however you translate the other word. And it's a complete 613. And yet, if you want it, we can break it down to millions, billions, and today we know trillions of cells. Just in one body. How much is going on at every moment, at every second? You can literally go and you can divide it, and if you divide it further, you can discover more layers and more layers, and there's literally infinite amount of layers. So we are a reflection of this supernal version of godliness that Hashem created. So he expressed this, let's call it, finite infinity, both in his own self, in the Torah, and in the collective soul of the Jewish people, and it filtered down into the human, the physical human being to also mirror this reality. That's a very mystical conversation. Now let's, let's move it to the practical. What did Hashem want from all of this? Hashem wanted from all of this that all parts of the supernal man together with the physical human being should fuse. Which means the divine light, godliness, should be carried through the Torah into the soul of the Jewish people into the physical human being. Ultimately, we should be vehicles for godliness in this world. By observing the Torah, we draw forth this limited divine light that's applicable and relevant to our world and bring it into ourselves so that we become more divinely inspired, so that we become more divinely conscious. And in fact, that's exactly what happens. Every time we do a mitzvah, which seems physical, and in fact, you can only do mitzvahs with physical objects, you got to crunch the matzah, shake the lulav, put on the tefillin, wear the tzitzis. You can't do ethereal mitzvahs. Mitzvahs are only physical. And yet, just like Hashem made it in the supernal version, physicality, which seems to be the most finite reality, contains the potential for the ultimate infinity. You tap, or really more accurately, you hold God when you do a mitzvah. You're wrapping leather straps you're holding Hashem. Without the supernal man, none of this would be possible. Hashem would remain divorced from reality because they couldn't fuse. But once Hashem created the Adam HaAlyon, this new and improved godliness 2.0, where He made the finite infinity come together in harmony, now we can reproduce that harmony as well. And the Alter Rebbe explains with this a very interesting verse in the Torah. At one point, Yaakov, who is the collective soul of the Jewish people, has an experience, and he wants to thank Hashem, and he builds an altar, as his fathers did as well, to offer a sacrifice. And then the Torah says, Vayikra lo kel eloke Yisrael. Which literally means, Hashem called Jacob Hashem gave Jacob the name God, the God of Israel. Sounds pretty heretical. Yaakov became Hashem. Another interpretation is that Yaakov called the altar. He, that the altar is God. That sounds even worse. It's like idol worship. Some of the commentators explain that it means I built the altar for God. But the literal translation means that he gave a name, a title to something by calling it Hashem, by calling it God. And the Alter Rebbe says in this letter 
that based on our previous discussion, we get a little insight into the verse. In Hebrew, the word vayikra, calling, also has the connotation of drawing forth. Just like physically, when you call somebody, you get their attention. In Hebrew, the word kriah means also hamshacha, to bring down. Yaakov was the quintessential Jew. When he built the altar, which was that time, the mitzvahs, the Torah hadn't been giving us so there weren't any mitzvahs, but of his time, worshipping Hashem, it was his version of the mitzvahs. By doing the altar, he called down, he brought down, Kel Elokei Yisrael, a revelation of a certain element of godliness. Just like when we do the mitzvahs, we bring down, we call forth a revelation, a godly experience into this world, Jacob was the first to do that. He built the altar and thereby called down a flow of godly energy that became apparent in his own self. And in fact, he gave us the power to do so forevermore. So Yaakov started the process that Hashem had in mind when he made this supernal man, and it's on us to continue the process. And every mitzvah that we do indeed does that. Draws down from all three elements of the supernal man into the physical man. The Alter Rebbe says we experience these divine experiences mainly when we daven. So you can do a mitzvah during another part of the day, but your godly experience will come when you pray the next day. Because the whole idea of prayer is, is meeting Hashem. So Hashem kind of stores all the effects of your mitzvahs and he waits for davening time to inject you. That's why many people get inspired when they daven. That's the result of the mitzvahs that you performed that morning, the previous day, etc. That's the, the first half of the letter, letter number seven. The second half, the, the plot takes a very fascinating turn. Judaism began with a collective soul. But now we're, we, we, we've been split up into many individual souls. We've been fragmented. Every Jew exists on his own. So we have to do Torah and mitzvahs for ourselves. Each one of us, for our own soul, has to carry down all the unique 613 potential capabilities of divine inspiration. We must learn the whole Torah, we must do the, all the mitzvahs, which is why, by the way, we have the concept of reincarnation. Coming back into the world is the same soul needs to repair or finish up its, its, its full mission. So on the individual level, we're all working towards our individual perfection. But we're also part of the collective Jew, which means in a certain way, we're all one limb or another in the entirety of the Jewish experience. We all have all the limbs, but we may be the toenail of the entire Jewish people. In fact, Alter Rebbe makes the case the entire Jewish history. Because you can say there's a collective Jew at every moment, but you can also say that the entire panorama of Jewish existence is one collective body. So we are one part, one cell of the entirety of Jewish history. So just like in our own micro world, every mitzvah that we do corresponds to an individual limb within our body and our soul, on the whole, on the totality of the Jewish people, we can say that every Jew 
depending on which limb he is, is charged with a specific mitzvah that's his thing. Let's say in your own body there's a mitzvah for the hand and a mitzvah for the foot. In the Jewish body, those that are associated with the hand have to focus on the hand mitzvahs. Those that are associated with the feet have to focus on the feet mitzvahs. In the same way, not just individual Jews, but entire generations. We, we're called in the Gemara, ikvita de Mashiach, the heels, the footsteps of Mashiach, which means Kabbalistically that we are the heels of the historical Jew. So we have to focus in this generation on heel-related mitzvahs. Heel is like an expression for the things that you just step on with your heel. Things that other people might, might overlook, the small things. We've we got to pay attention to the small things. So we're functioning on the micro and the macro at the same time. We're, we're working on our own mission for, for Torah and mitzvahs, but then we have to appreciate that we're also part of this greater whole in which we're charged with a specific mitzvah for our time and for ourselves. The Talmud relates that there was one time two rabbis having a conversation. One rabbi said to the other, tell me something about your dad. B'may zahir Which mitzvah was he most careful with? And the guy said, my father, he was the most careful with tzitzit. He loved tzitzit. Why did the guy ask him which one was he most careful with? Because it was obvious that he was careful with all the mitzvahs. Most careful means which mitzvah matched up to his soul as part of the collective Jewish people. Which mitzvah was he focused on in bringing wholesomeness to the entirety of Jewish history? In his case, it was tzitzit. In every individual's case, it's another thing. The Rebbe would say, how do you know what's your thing? How do you know what's your mitzvah? Two possibilities. Either a mitzvah that you particularly enjoy, or a mitzvah that you particularly don't enjoy. If you find that you have a particular enjoyment and fascination with a certain mitzvah, it probably is an indication that that's something your soul has to be occupied with. In the same way, if you're encountering a barrier and the Yetzir Hara is trying consistently to stop you from doing a certain mitzvah, every time the opportunity pops up, he's getting in your way, you can probably be sure that's something connected to your divine purpose. That's why he's giving you such a hard time. But be that as it may, each Jew has his own thing. And the author makes a powerful observation, which is that your thing may not be logically connected to you. Sometimes we're, we're prone to think, hey, if I'm part of the Jewish whole, let me find that part which matches my character, and that's probably the part that I have to focus on, because it makes sense. Alter says, no. Your part, the thing that may belong to you, the mitzvah that may belong to you, may not, in fact, it's high chance that it doesn't align necessarily with logic. The, the illustration he uses is a raffle. Just like a raffle is arbitrary, Right? You can, you can divide a cake, everyone can pick their part, but then you can raffle off pieces. Raffle off means that you're leaving it completely to chance. And you're throwing it out there, and uh, whatever happens, happens. Kabbalistically, raffle has a very deep connotation. Raffle means you're, you want to reach a level that's transcending logic. Human beings are bound by logic, so sometimes we throw it to the, to the lot, and we say, now we're going to access that part which is beyond Reason. You know, Purim is within, less than a month. The word Purim means raffle. The whole holiday of Purim is called Purim because the, the raffle was very prominent. 
And the idea is that even when we think we're leaving it to chance, Hashem does not mention that once in the Megillah story. His name doesn't appear once. Even when it seems like there's a raffle going on, Hashem is behind it all. But the part that you get may be a result of God's raffle. He says it's not necessarily um, bound by logical rules. Hashem just decided that's how that's how it came up in God's thought and that's what you got. Sure. Most of us struggle with lots of mitzvot. Yes. You know, on a daily basis. How do we know which one is our, the, the unique one that is this one? Right. Yours is poo <laughs> <laughs> I want to get mine. <laughs> yeah, no, it, it's, 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 like, yeah, sometimes it's hard to discover it. You got to try. Yeah, like, it's like, what, what, if, what if you don't know? Yeah. You have enjoyment in many mitzvahs, or you have a struggle with many mitzvahs. Try different ones out. You're going to encounter different levels of struggle. You'll see. This one, okay, he's easing into it quite good. The other one, nah, the adjustment period is taking too long. Oh, that might be the one. And you got you to gotta, you gotta find it. Your Delta Tau Chi mitzvah name is... Yes. And this whole idea is reflected in a passage that we say before Davening. And in fact, this is the heading of the letter. Every letter in, the, in book four of the Tanya begins with a verse or a passage. This, ver, th- this letter begins with the passage, Ashrenu matov chelkenu, umana in goralenu. Fortunate are we. How beautiful is our part and how pleasant is our lot. We say it every day in Davenik. And Alter Rebbe says, those words are exact. How good is our portion? How pleasant is our lot, our raffle? Every Jew has a portion. Every Jew has a part of the Torah and mitzvahs that besides for doing the, all of it for yourself, you have to do it as your contribution to the Jewish whole. But at the same time, it's called a raffle. It may or may not match necessarily your identity. Sometimes you might see why it's your part. It doesn't negate it completely. It could be sometimes you will realize why this is my purpose. And other times, it seems antithetical to everything you live for, and yet we embrace it as our purpose. There's an incredible story that I want to close the class with that happened with the Alter Rebbe, the author of the Tanya. There was a chassid of the Alter Rebbe, whose name was Rabbi Yosef of Beshenkovitz. He lived in a city called Beshenkovitz, and his name was Yosef. And in 1804, he entered into an audience with the Alter Rebbe. And the Alter Rebbe asked him, Yosef, do you study Mishnah by heart? He said, yes, Rabbi, I do. In fact, I have a cycle where I finish the entire Mishnah every month by heart. So the Alter Rebbe said, the word Mishnah in Hebrew has the same letters as Nishama, as soul. I bless you to find a good wife, have children, and have a good life. And remember this, sometimes it's better to be a wagon driver than to be a rabbi. Cryptic words sent him on his way, 1804. 
The Alter Rebbe passed away in 1812. In 1814, a full 10 years after this private audience, Yosef of Beshenkovitz is married happily with children, and he's approached by a delegation from a nearby city. They're looking for a rabbi. We need a rabbi. We heard you're very learned. We heard you're very wise. We heard you're very Hasidic. We want you to guide us and lead our community. He hears the offer, and he remembers the Alter Rebbe's words from 10 years before that. He said, it's better to be a wagon driver than to be a rabbi. So he turned them down. He said, I can't take the position. I have guidance from my Rebbe. I'm not supposed to be a rabbi. And he said, well, they left. And he says to himself, if I'm fulfilling the second half of the statement, then I should fulfill the first half of the statement. The Alter Rebbe said, it's good to be a wagon driver. I should invest in becoming a wagon driver. He knew nothing about horses, nothing about wagons, but he figured, the Alter Rebbe said, it's going to be good. So he went to the local stables and he re- comes to the first uh, you know, coachman that he sees and he says, teach me, teach me something about wagon driving. The guy thought he went crazy. This Yosef was a respected man. He sat in shul and learned all day. And now he comes, wants to become a coachman. It made no sense. But the coachman saw he was stubborn, so he brought him to the horse. The first horse he brought him to, the horse wagged its tail, smacked him in the face, gave him a huge cut. He tried fixing one of the wheels and he got all dirty and, 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 and all his clothes were ruined. And he came home looking like, literally, a beggar off the street. Not only that, but of course, word had already spread through the town that Yosef went crazy. He's becoming a coachman. And his wife, who's waiting for him at home, first of all, she sees him all bloodied up and dirty. And then she has to add her own insult to injury. My husband went nuts. What's going on? You lost your mind. What are you becoming a wagon driver for? Why did you even try it? He hadn't told her ever about the audience. And now he told her. He said, you should know the Alter Rebbe told me 10 years before that I have to become a wagon driver. So she said, oh, if the Alter Rebbe said, that's it. Wagon driver. I'm not only am I going to support you, I'm going to pawn my jewelry to give you money to buy yourself your own horse and wagon so you can get onto the job right away. And of course, you have my full backing. Go learn how to be a coachman. And that's what he did. He learned how to be a coachman. That's the miracle of the story. The wagon. Well, yeah. Yeah. very good. Very good. Nathaniel. Nathaniel. Sure enough, he, he, he bought his coach and he started giving people rides. You understand? From going, learning Torah all day to, to literally driving people from place to place. For two years it went on. In 1816, sometime between Pesach and Shavuos, he was traveling Kind of like Uber drivers do. You know, they go on this like long trip and they pick up people on the way and drop them off and they're kind of working their way towards somewhere. So he was working his way towards a particular city in, uh, in Ukraine. And he stopped off at a motel. And in this motel, he sees a guy, Jewish guy. He knows this Jewish guy because this Jewish guy is famous for having abandoned his faith and going to work by the local count, local Russian count. His name was Shlomo Leib, but he was very happy not to identify as a Jew. He had left his wife and kids. He abandoned them. He married a goy, three kids with her. And uh, 
he was there in the inn. And he sees a coachman. He says, tell me, maybe you're heading towards this and this city. So Yosef says, actually I am. He says, great, I need to go there tomorrow early in the morning. I'm going to take you, I'm going to hire you to give me a ride. So Yosef, even though he was a coachman, but he was still a chassid, he said, I'm sorry, I don't do rides before 10 a.m. Because I daven in the morning, and it takes me a long time to daven. So I can't leave before 10. He heard something Jewish, this triggered him. He starts shouting at him, he says, no way, if that's the case, I'm not taking you. He runs to the innkeeper, he says, get me a goy, coachman from the next town, I want to leave at 5 in the morning, tomorrow morning. Okay. They settle down for the evening, and they're in adjacent rooms. Yosef is in one room, and the next guy is in the next room. Yosef had a custom also to get up at midnight. Many righteous people at midnight would do tikkun chatzot, a midnight service to mourn the temple. He gets up, and he's doing this service with a great feeling, and he's crying. And Shlomo Leib in the next room hears the crying, and he couldn't believe what he's hearing. A Jew crying. So he went over to the room, and he peeked open the door a little bit. He was able to watch Yosef's sincerity, and it, it, it touched something in his soul. And he started to think about all the things that he had done. Abandoned his wife and children. He had three kids with a goy. Two of his kids actually died. Already, they had already died, but he still had, you know, he still had this life. Died from the goy. Yeah, two kids of the goy died. But he had three kids with her. And he couldn't, he just couldn't, something overcame him. He became so overcome with emotion that he began to cry as well. And thoughts of teshuva, of repentance, were coming through him. He went back to his room. In the morning, Yosef got up at five in the morning to go to the mikvah. And he put him his talus and tefillin began to daven in great, great connection to Hashem. While he's davening, Shlomo Leib, the, the heretic, asks the innkeeper for a pair of tefillin. He hasn't put on tefillin in years. But he was inspired by Yosef to become, to, to, to put on tefillin. He put on tefillin, he davened himself. When Yosef was done at 10 a.m., he said, please give me a ride. I want to come with you. I want to go back to my faith. And Yosef said, I can, I can tell that you're sincere. Come with me. Continue on my journey. And they continued. But on the way, Shlomo Leib became so um, involved in his tshuva process that he got sick. He was so in pain over his past that he literally got sick and he, had to, he was bedridden. So they stopped and he told Yosef, he said, it, it, it pains me to my core. All my sins between man and God I can take care of. But that I married a non-Jew and I had kids with her. Now there's walking, living proof. I can't change that. That I'll never be able to achieve atonement for. And uh, Yosef just tried to empathize with him, but that was, that was all they had. Two days later, news came to the town that his non-Jewish wife and his one surviving kid from that relationship had drowned. And the doctor said, we can't tell Shlomo Leib anything because he's in pain. This will cause him more pain. But Yosef knew that's the news he was waiting for. So he snuck into his room and let him know. And he got a little happier and a little healthier and he became fully observant back to the Torah ways. Comes Shavuos, 1816. Now it's 12 years after the original story. The Alter Rebbe's son has taken over the Chabad movement. And Yosef comes to the Mittler Rebbe, the second Chabad Rebbe for Shavuos. And as was customary then, Hasidim would go in for a private audience after the holiday. 
He comes in for a private audience. And the second Rebbe tells him, my father came to me yesterday. The Alter Rebbe came to me yesterday. And he told me, Yosef fulfilled his purpose. Yosef fulfilled his purpose. And the second Rebbe then said, my father took you from being an all-encompassing Jew to a very individuated Jew. He narrowed your purpose into a very, very limited thing. He had you coach wagons, you know, be a horseman for all this time just to save one yid. Now, it's my turn to take you from a narrow purpose to a wider purpose. I'm appointing you now to stay in Lubavitch and to guide the youth that are coming here to study. And this way, you'll be able to help them grow in their service of God. And sure enough, that's what happened. So this is a man who had a purpose coming to him that he felt was completely unrelated to his soul. And yet, that was his thing. That was his raffle from Hashem. And what's our thing? The Alter Rebbe says, not in the letter, but in the part that's not printed. In the Tanya, there's a missing part. The Alter Rebbe concludes, what's our thing? Tzedakah. Many of the letters in these books are about tzedakah, especially to Israel. The Alter Rebbe says, we didn't ask for it. Hasidim moved to Israel. They need our money. They need our support. Let's do what we can and, and support them. We actually pushed them to collect money before Pesach because in the summer, apparently produce was cheaper in Israel. So if we get all the money before Pesach and the guy with the money can go right after Pesach and get there in the middle of the summer, they'll be able to buy money for cheap. If we wait for the collections later, they're not going to have enough money. This is our thing, says the Alter Rebbe. It's our raffle, it's our lot. By doing it, we fulfill our purpose and we contribute to the Jewish whole. And in the same way, each of us has to do the same thing. We have our part, it's given to us from God, and let's do it. L'chaim. L'chaim.